I'm Perry Bacon. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post. It's about an hour after the Supreme Court issued its ruling striking down affirmative action in college admissions in an opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts. I'm joined here by my colleague, Christine Imba, and we're going to talk a bit about the ruling itself and sort of what it means. It's, we're just an hour since the ruling was issued, so neither of us has read the full opinion yet, but we've studied the issue a lot, and we want to talk less about the law and more about kind of the cultural and political impacts of this ruling and what it says about uh, racial issues in America and where we're headed. So with that, um, Christine, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I would say that I'm happy to be here, but I'm not exactly happy about this ruling. So let's start there. Give me your just general reaction to the ruling. Well, I mean, the ruling doesn't come as much of a surprise. We've heard many of the justices, but especially Clarence Thomas, I would say, interestingly, um, speak out against affirmative action. This has been up for debate in various courts for years, um, and it they have finally decided what they hinted they would decide all along. So I guess my worry coming into this was it was maybe the court would would have a broad based ruling that no institution in America can consider race ever again or something like that. And just reading the ruling a little bit and the focus is very much on colleges cannot consider race as, a you know, broadly. But it looks like if you you know, live in Detroit or Chicago, or I'm trying to make a stereotypical, you know, black city to Supreme Court justice. Anyway, the idea, I mean, it looks like if you write in your essay, I'm a black person, I will bring diversity in these three ways in your essay, you can probably still do that even. So I'll be curious, like what the rulings kind of uh, impact will be ultimately. So talk about what this means for black people in America, you know, from 1619 or 1865 or 1965 or 2008 or 2020. Talk about this, your reaction in that context of like, we've had a long struggle to create black equality. This seems like a setback. I'm not sure how big of a setback it is, but talk about that. Sure. Well, I mean, affirmative action was instituted to make it more plausible that not just Black people, but actually women uh, and people of color could access what had been primarily uh, white and male spaces. And it has, you know, it has been successful. We've seen a huge broadening of the diversity of especially elite colleges and institutions, um, but also workplaces and also up to, you know, the levels of leadership and CEOs over the past several decades. Um, And I, of course, frankly, think that that's been great. You mentioned that this ruling seems fairly narrowly drawn, uh, that it seems to only focus on colleges and that, you know, it's possible that a student of color could write in their application, I am a student of color and here is why you should admit me. But we already know that especially these elite colleges are just flooded by applicants. Um, It is difficult to imagine that, you know, every application will be read as closely as desired and they'll simply move on to using other metrics to choose which students attend. And we've seen in states like California that got rid of affirmative action years ago, this has led to a significant drop in the numbers of African-American and Hispanic students um, in the University of California system, for instance, uh, and has led to simply less diversity and a less diverse space for the future leaders of that state. And that is now something that we will import to the rest of America. 
So I was talking about, I gave those dates of important black history, 1865 is then the Civil War, obviously. 1965 is when the Voting Rights Act passed. 2008 is when Obama was elected. I do think if this ruling was issued in 2009 or 2010, we'd be a different place. 2009, 2010, we're in that moment of America's post-racial. There are no racial divides and nothing, everything has changed. And we, and I think now we're in a period to where um, the 2020 protests, Black Lives Matter, we've had a, you know the greater focus in our society on systemic and enduring effects of racism, redlining. I do think we're in a place to where I I, I think in a, in a sort of a better place, and this was issued in 2010, to where I suspect universities, there will be more criticism of this ruling. Universities will try to kind of work around it. Universities will think about diversity still. Other institutions will not be like, well, John Roberts said we're post-racial, so we are. Because I, So I think that we've, we were in a kind of a better place in the racial dialogue in the country or a more realistic place, a, a place I agree with more, first of all, but I think a place that's more evidence-based and accurate in terms of seeing systemic racism, seeing where it is. Kachanji Brown-Jackson is on the court. I think she, from what I've read of her opinion, she gets into some, and both her and Sotomayor's reactions were sort of talking about race in very realistic terms in a way I don't think necessarily Stephen Breyer would have gotten to as, as much the person uh, Jackson replaced. And so I do think we're in a place where I, I think the rest of society will not sort of just look at this as well. Race is, you know, race is over and we don't talk about that more. I think there will be institutions, you know, frankly, like the Washington Post are, I think, still going to care about um, having a diverse group of people working for them, having black people represented. So I think I'll be curious to see what happens next. So let me ask you, Christine, what do you think, like, Yale or University of North Carolina or Harvard should do in their admissions. You can imagine, for example, this is a sort of a silly idea, but it's off the top of my head. If Yale said we will, um, half our class will be people who make who's are from families that make less than $100,000. You can see that would have some benefit in making Yale at least less exclusive and less or Harvard or what have you, less um, wealthy and so on. And that, and that might it might make it slightly easier for minority students who tend to be have lower incomes to get in. So you can imagine Yale making some change like that. Yeah, so I think you've hit on what is probably going to be the next notable shift in college admissions. So I've spoken to a few university presidents over the past year about their worries about this ruling. None of them are in favor uh, of getting rid of affirmative action and what they plan to do to sort of attempt to get around it. And there has been much more interest in sorting for economic and class diversity. Um, so as you describe, you know, looking for more students who are Pell Grant eligible, um, who do not come from uh, sort of the wealthiest echelons of America. At the same time, though, especially at elite universities, there are already so many seats that are, frankly, taken by legacy admission students who usually come from wealthy families where a parent or two parents went to that university in the past. I think that universities will have to really go out of their way even further um, to 
actively recruit students from diverse backgrounds. That may mean going to schools, high schools um, in cities or counties that are heavily minority and saying affirmatively, look, we want you to come. Here is how you can apply and actually giving them, you know, clear guidance um, as to how to apply to those schools, not just assuming that they'll, you know, figure it out, figure out how to write the correct essay that hints at their diversity so that they can be accepted. I do think that, you know, schools should begin to phase out legacy admissions. But, you know, there are downsides for the schools when they do this. They may lose alumni funding or interest, so they they will be disinclined. You can alternatively imagine where it is likely the number of, uh, let's say, Black students for now at these colleges will go down. So maybe there's a discussion among, if you're among Black people, where if you're the top student at... um, at a high school in New York City and you could get into Northwestern, maybe you decide, hey, I'd rather not be at Northwestern where the rules are such to where there are only 5% of the kids are black and I feel like I really stand out. And instead you go to Howard or you go to Spelman and that sort of changes where the sort of you know top black students go. What do you think maybe should happen next in terms of how we adjust to this ruling for the black people's behavior individually? I do think that we're, frankly, already seeing more African-American high schoolers and students applying to uh, HBCUs, um, historically black colleges and universities, because they are, you know, being seen as a more welcoming space, frankly, um, in a country where, yes, there were sort of steps forward uh, after the Obama administration, um, but especially after the events of 2020, the the history and engagement of of race in this country has begun to seem even more fraught, if possible, than it may have in the past. Um, And going to HBCUs sort of ensures students that they will be surrounded by other students and professors who understand that and want to, to help them succeed. But I mean, I want to push back a little bit, Perry, on what you said about, you know, colleges, universities and companies still seeking out some form of diversity is highly necessary and the idea that they will still go out of their way to do so. I do think that in many cases, the the law is a teacher um, and what the Supreme Court rules on affirmative action is taken as a signal as to whether it is in fact, you know, needed anymore. In 2003, um, another landmark affirmative action case, Grutter v. Bollinger, which was about the University of Michigan, Sandra Day O'Connor said that she she sort of made a prediction that in 25 years, say, affirmative action won't be necessary anymore. We'll have solved that problem. It will be time for it to go. And what the Supreme Court is kind of signaling with this ruling is that, well, it's been enough years. We have done enough with affirmative action. It's time for it to go. We maybe don't need to worry about this anymore. And that may not be what they mean to say, but I do suspect that that is the spirit in which it will be taken by, if not the colleges and universities that are already worried about it, um, certainly employers, and also, frankly, many Americans who are watching this happen, who feel that they have somehow been hurt by affirmative action and think that racism is not a problem anymore. They'll be able to say, see, the Supreme Court confirmed this. Why are you still complaining? And I think that that will actually be hurtful in the long run. Considering how long we discussed every racial issue in the country in 2020, do you think people are, I agree that maybe America is not where it was on May 
2020. Do you think it'll move back a lot based on this ruling? I mean, I don't want to draw too broad a brush and say that, you know, America is going to take several steps back as a whole in history. But, you know, after 2020, there was, you know, a hugely heightened awareness of, you know, racial fissures in our country, um, our racial politics. And yes, companies and institutions and individuals went out of their way to at least signal that they were doing something about it. And in polling, you saw sort of high levels of acknowledgement that racism was still a problem in the United States that we needed to do more. But after a year or two, polling showed a huge backlash, actually, several steps back. Um, The people, many of the people who said, you know, we need to do more to combat racism, um, to increase diversity in our nation said, okay, this was hard. 2020, 2021, we, we did a lot. We're done now. Haven't we done enough? And so you actually saw a huge fall in support uh, for programs that help to increase diversity, that actually recognized racial fissures in our country. And I do think that this ruling is part of that backlash, a sort of sense that, look, we've talked about race for so long, enough already. So this is not a theoretical discussion in a certain in a, in a way for you and I, um, whether we call them elite colleges or I think the better term might be highly rejective colleges. Uh, <laughs> both you and I attended one of them. I went to Yale and you went to Princeton. And so this is the, the these are the kinds of policies that you know I, I've thought about for a long time because you know you, you, as an as an individual admittee to one of these colleges they don't tell you congratulations you were accepted to Yale and that was thirteen percent because you're black you don't you know you're not mm-hmm. necessarily ever going to be clear on that but you know we do know as a general policy at least when I was coming up and you were too that these universities were trying to admit their no- increase the number of black students so talk about how do you feel sort of personally? I don't know what you, I don't know if you enjoyed Princeton. I'm not sure if you talked about affirmative action while you are at Princeton. I'm not sure what, so talk about how you feel about this ruling in terms of your life. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I have to say I, I loved Princeton. I enjoyed Princeton. I'm still an active member of the alumni community. And yes, it's impossible to say, you know, what percentage of my admission was due to the fact that I am black. Um, But whether that was a factor or not, and I'm sure in some ways it was a factor, going to Princeton allowed me to meet people, um, to find opportunities that I would not have had access to otherwise. It makes me really sad that more students may miss out on that opportunity, um, that they will not be considered for that opportunity. You know, I think I'm really aligned with uh, actually what Justice Sonia Sotomayor said in her dissent, which she actually read from the bench Um, which is pretty unusual. And she had been, you know, signaling this um, for many years prior. She's frequently talked about how, you know, she was admitted to um, an elite college. And she knows that in some ways, affirmative action was part of it, that her scores were, you know, lower coming than some of her peer students. But she was an intelligent student who deserved to be there. She was given the opportunity, despite you know, not necessarily having the background that would necessarily lead an admissions officer to pick her. And because of that, she thrived. She was able to, you know, go to an elite law school. She's now a Supreme Court justice. Um, And she says that, you know, none of that would have been possible for her without 
the effects of affirmative action without that being considered in her case, without special notice being taken of her status as a woman of color. And I think like me, she fears that many more students whose profiles now will not be actually looked at with, you know, the clarity and the decision making that affirmative action had pushed for will be shut out from opportunities that they could use to join the leadership class, frankly, of American society and work to make it more diverse from the top down too, not just from the bottom up. Essentially the leadership class point, because I do think it's possible that I was thinking about some black colleagues who might be on this podcast, and I looked it up, and you're, you went to Princeton, I went to Yale, another colleague has degrees from uh, Northwestern and Columbia, another colleague, University of Michigan. These are all elite schools. I mean, so, um, and now we're an, elite, we're an elite job at the Washington Post. So it's, you know, I mean, hopefully, you know, I'm not in charge of the hiring, but I obviously think there are great black students at the University of Kentucky, University of Louisville, University of Florida, other places like that. So part of it might be, obviously, all the uh, talent is not concentrated at, at three colleges. And I think it's like great. It'll be great to, I hope, employers consider broadening the universe of people. At the same time, I do think since, you know, as you noted, the leadership class of the country, white, black, Asian, etc., is often currently chosen through these schools. Uh, Judge Jackson went to, I think, Harvard, has to do some Harvard. President Obama has went to Columbia and Harvard. So I think you, in the current dynamic where these schools do tend to produce a lot of the most prominent people, I think we do want to have Black and Latino students at these schools. A lot of the resistance to these schools is, or affirmative action is the idea that there is, we can, we can quantify precisely who is qualified, who is not qualified, who is most qualified. And so that and that was just not my my experience at, you know, at Yale was that, um, you know, I went to a public school that was one of the better public schools in Louisville, Kentucky, but was obviously not, you know, uh, Phillips Exeter or one of these sort of fancy private schools that some of my classmates um, went to. Um, I remember my roommate played squash and I had not previously heard of squash as a sport. So I definitely like learned some things early on. But my experience was that, you know, when I went to Yale was that the first semester was a little challenging. I had not been went to the most rigorous high school. But once I was sort of there, I was there. And and my sense is that many, many thousands of people could do well at Yale. I had pretty good grades at Yale. And I think many people are qualified. It's like Yale could take the people they rejected put those people in the class and the class would all do well too. And I think it's more a question of like, if we think about these colleges as less as a kind of reward for how hard you worked in high school, which creates lots of weird incentives and thought about more is like, how do we educate more people, educate people better, think about this kind of leadership class question. I wish we thought about, I think that a lot of the lawsuits and so on are driven by this I deserve to go to Yale, and I'm not totally sure that's exactly a great way to think of it because I think there, Yale admits 1,600 people. I think that there are probably 20,000 who deserve to go to Yale, or so to speak, and I'm just not sure that's the kind of right way to think about it. The other thing is, I guess, um, in terms of my personal feelings, you know, so I went to Yale, which has an intentional program to um, increase the number of black applicants. I was hired at the Washington Post in May 2021. It's hard to imagine that that some of that was not related to the fact that there was a call for greater diversity um, at the Washington Post after the 2020 protests and so on. And so in both cases, did being black help? 
I'm sure it did. I don't like look upon them a lot of guilt or shame. I, like I said, I think, you know, let me not reduce my salary too much here, but I think lots of people could be columnists at the Washington Post besides me too um, and, and do that job pretty well. So it's not a question of who's qualified. Many people are qualified. Um, I've been blessed to have the opportunities. But I, as a black person, I do think who, you know, knowing the history and so on, I do think about like goals. I, you know, I am a black person in a country that is discriminated against black people and where black people don't have the opportunity. So now that I have one, how do I use the column or use going to Yale to open up more spaces? How do I write pieces? How do I do work that sort of contributes in a positive way, as opposed to thinking I am a special black person that deserves this and worked harder than the other black people did to get it. It's my thought is more lots of black people could be in this role. I happen to be in it. How do I advance sort of us forward in a certain way is kind of how I um, think about this uh, personally. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I relate a lot to, to what you just said. I think that there is an odd, an odd understanding of elite college admissions in the United States. that says, you know, that they are, they are what dictate your worth. Um, that if you have gotten into an elite college, it says something about you. It says that you are somehow better than the rest of the American population. And so I do think that that creates a lot more pressure and a lot more competition among students to use sort of anything that they can to either get themselves in um, or ideally try and take away supports that would help other students um, get in in their place. And I think this is kind of what we had seen playing out in this case, pitting Asian American students, frankly, against um, Black students in in the use of affirmative action. That said, I do think that it is really important to think about the sorting mechanisms that are used to, you know, produce, um, yes, the leadership class of this country, the people who make decisions, and how those lines are drawn. I think one of the benefits of going to Princeton for me was that I was able to to meet people um, in roles that I could not have imagined uh, at my, you know, as a high school student at my, you know, frankly, not very good, actually, public high school. And meeting these people, going to these places that I hadn't seen before, were what helped enable me to sort of make the connections and make the career plans that enabled me to end up at a place like the Washington Post. When you think of how hiring is done in sort of these leadership classes, um, these elite spaces, very often it's sort of, well, I'll look around and I'll see, you know, who I know, who I went to school with, who was in the same law school class as me. And the benefit of affirmative action or of policies that help to create, you know, more diverse school classes was that. Occasionally, when older leaders would look around, they would see not just people who looked like them, but people of color. And those people would then have access to these spaces that they might not have in the past. And I just see this decision taking that away, um, beginning to flatten out the number of people who will who will be seen, who will be looked at, and who will have access moving forward. And that will be worse for racial diversity in the long term. I think it's a good point to end on. Christine, thanks for joining us. This was great. Thanks so much for talking to me, Perry.